Second Down on ESPN Radio is presented to you by the Uniform Source. Chris Gokel, glad to have you hanging out with us here as we are talking some SEC football. Our next guest joins us from allgators.com, taking a look at the 2022 Florida Gators under first-year coach there, Billy Napier. Zach Goodall joins us here on ESPN Radio. Zach, thanks for taking the time, man. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Excited to have you, man, because even – since I reached out to you uh, to set this up, we've had a ton of storylines develop around the Florida program. But I want to start on the field because I think Florida is one of the more interesting teams uh, from around the country, right? One of the more interesting storylines going into the year. Typically, when you see a school of the caliber of Florida, a team that's won a couple of national championships in the not-too-distant past, when they make a coaching change, I feel like it would be a bigger storyline going into the year. But it seems like nationally, uh, things are kind of quiet around Gainesville. Yeah, I mean, I think you can, I think you can attribute a lot of it to how many coaching changes there were this year, too, right? Like, unlike anything we've ever seen, probably a subject for another day. But I think that paired with NIL and the way it's changing recruiting is going to completely change what the December to February time frame looks like eventually for college football. But that aside, um, yeah, Florida's—they're a tricky team to project at this point because of what Napier inherited. And certainly, if you've been paying attention to their recruiting efforts over the last couple of days, definitely on Twitter, you would have seen the uh, the outrage of what has not been a great stretch. So, you know, really all it is right now is kind of negative PR and a lot of uneasiness going into the first season. I, I don't think expectations are as high as they typically are for a Florida team. Uh, maybe not nationally, but I got to imagine uh, around the Florida fan base, right, things are the expectations have to be as high uh, as they typically are, right? The goal has to be upset Georgia and Jacksonville and win the SEC East. I think a lot of traditional fans have that mindset, and, you know, I can't blame anyone for having that. This is the University of Florida, a national championship winning team, certainly supposed to be a contending team, but as we've seen over the last decade, they've kind of inched further and further away from getting there instead of, you know, competing year in and year out to do it with all the coaching changes, the momentum they build only to crash rather significantly. We've seen it a couple times. that At least some fans have tempered their expectations going into this year, and I think that Napier has been a huge reason why. I think I really appreciate his honesty. You know, throughout spring camp, I've not heard a coach openly say, yeah, my roster is not in the shape it needs to be in uh, upon taking a job. He would tell us that, you know, they really didn't have – a quality second team of depth on the team. They like their first team, but if someone gets injured or in practice to give the first teamers the rest that they need, they're not confident in what they've got. And that's why they've attacked the portal so much throughout this year and gotten some, you know, needs addressed and talent brought in, but it still was just, it was in need of such a drastic makeover on the field, on the staff, on the personnel side, and the way recruiting was operated that. I think some people at least are starting to realize that year one just may not be that pretty. They've got a tough plate too, so it's just it's not it's kind of the perfect storm, if you will. We're catching up with Zach Goodall from allgators.com. Uh, in college football, we see it a lot where there's a guy who's just a clear NFL talent, right? Just scary uh, attributes, does stuff that just other division 1 power 5 football players that makes them look silly, right? I think Back to guys like, for an example, like A.J. Green, where you know how good they were in school, but just the teams they are were on were disappointing, and once they move on, you don't really remember a ton of their play from college, right? 
Is there some fear that that might be uh, what Anthony Richardson has in store where he's that kind of an amazing football player, goes on to have a great NFL career, but just never really lived up to it at Florida, not because of himself, but just because of when he came to Florida? I mean, if you factor in recency bias, I would understand why that fear is is rationalized at Florida. I mean, look at Jeff Driscoll, who came out of a local school, five-star quarterback, went to Florida, Nothing happened with his career there, and he, you know, he's not been a quality NFL player or anything in terms of being a starter or a star. But he still has an NFL career going on right now, getting paid, you know, good money as a backup, and going from team to team and getting spot starts. And there have been other cases like that since Florida's last national championship, where that is kind of, you know, a thing that happens here. And Anthony, I mean, when I watch him as a football evaluator, not even a UF reporter, I do see just spectacular talent you know this is the type of quarterback that especially in this day and age every coach wants to get their hands on and develop and the early signs from him being Florida's number one quarterback which he's been this entire spring it's why Emory Jones transferred after two spring practices they're encouraging he looks like he fits this offense the spring game granted being a spring game but the offense that they rolled out for him and what they had introduced so far and you can also go back and look at what it looked like at Louisiana I think it matches his skill set really well to the point that, yes, Florida's talent is kind of lacking at this point. Their depth is hurting. They are not a perfect team. But this offense is at least going to be set up so Richardson can be as successful as possible given the circumstances. And, you know, maybe that will be great football. Maybe that will get Florida some additional wins that people aren't expecting this year. Maybe he'll at least improve from the years past and then um, and then maybe stick around for a red junior season. I- I'm not too sure just because there are so many moving factors just with this team and the way it's built at this point, that nothing's really easy to project. What have you seen so far from what this offense could potentially look like? Because I know uh, going back to his days at Louisiana, Billy Napier has a really cool offense, and he was able to turn a guy like Levi Lewis into a borderline uh, NFL quarterback. I know uh, some maybe some of the, the lower-level professional sports league uh, maybe were more realistic for a Levi Lewis, but turn Levi Lewis into a really good college quarterback. I was obviously heavy on using talented running backs inside of his offense. Is that what you expect to see out of Florida this year, or is he maybe catering it a little bit more towards the talent that he has here? I can see a mix of both. Uh, You go back and look at his Louisiana offense, and it was about 70% to 30%, 11 to 12 personnel. So we're going to see a drastic increase in tight end usage, especially two tight end sets compared to the roughly 90 to 95% spread offense that Dan Mullen ran. And people have started to believe that that means it's going to be a boring offense that just wants to run the ball and, you know, kind of game manage its way into points. I don't necessarily think that'll be the case. You're right. Running the ball is going to be a heavy part of this offense. I could see it being 55 to 60% of what they do. But that'll include three different types of running backs. They just lost to Marcus Bowman to the transfer portal, but they have three quality guys in Montreal Johnson, Lorenzo Lingard, and Naquan Wright, and a good freshman coming in in Trevor Etienne. So I think they'll use as much talent as they have in the running back room. I think Anthony Richardson will get a lot of chances to run the ball as well because we know how athletic he is. But also, if you, if you go back and watch Louisiana, you know they would use the run game to set up deep shots and to set up play action and allow the quarterback like Levi Lewis to go out there and utilize his arm talent. And it might lead to a lot of half-field reads with as much as they seem to want to use play action, 
But when you've got a dynamic running attack like that and a quarterback that can run the ball, you've got to use that to your advantage. And if it creates half-field reads, then so be it. Then the offense is easier for Richardson to pick up. Now, sometimes the best friend of a first-year head coach is like kind of easy opening slate, right? You get a directional school to come in, uh, you beat them by 70, and you just get off to a winning start, right? Florida might have thought that's what they were going to have as their opener when they scheduled out Utah however many years back. But the reality is Billy Napier's opener is going to be uh, against the odds-on favorite to win the Pac-12 right now, a team that went toe-to-toe with Ohio State in the Rose Bowl last year and a very good football team. What's the feeling like around uh, that opener there in the swamp? Interesting. I mean, it goes back to this team being hard to project and and understanding what this roster looks like. I'm I'm not overly encouraged that it's going to be a year where Florida gets eight plus wins. And Utah is certainly a formidable opponent. It, it doesn't necessarily help that it's going to be a night game too, because you know if Utah walks into the swamp at oh, yeah. twelve o'clock or even three thirty on a early September Saturday in Gainesville, they're not making it out of that game without being dehydrated. That would have been a huge help. But now it's a night game with a formidable opponent that's, you know, borderline college football playoff type of team in recent years. It's not going to be easy sledding. And then, forgive me, I don't have the full schedule in front of me now, but you've got Kentucky following that. You've got Tennessee not long after. And I think your first, as you alluded to, kind of the cupcake game is Eastern Washington, I think, in week four. So right out of the gate, Billy Napier is going to be tested in this roster itself which he has been very transparent on that not being up to shape. It'll certainly be tested as well. We're catching up with Zach Goodall from allgators.com. And Zach, I mentioned it earlier that the storylines around Florida uh, kind of fluid right now and evolving in a bunch of different ways, right? And just today on three uh, puts out a report uh, about a recruit and Jaden Rashada, who big time quarterback uh, recruit for 2023 uh, he commits to Miami, and if this is two years ago, it's just the fact that, hey, Miami got a quarterback over Florida. But now with NIL and with these collectives, uh, you have a lawyer, Mike Caspino, out of California saying that, yeah, uh, this guy just took the best deal possible uh, with Miami, potentially a upwards of $9 million contract uh, to sign with the Hurricanes, and didn't stop there, went on to say that he took less money and that potentially Florida had offered him upwards of $11 million from the Gators Collective, I, this just seems asinine to me, and it seems dumb for him to be putting these things out there. I, I know you've been around this a lot. How much of this can you confirm, and how much of it is just a dude sticking his foot in his mouth? Yeah, I hope you don't mind. Uh, I've got quite a few takes on this. Oh, please, first, let's go. Yeah, first off, I'm not even going to bother trying to confirm the numbers because I think they get – very exaggerated at this point. And maybe they're not because I was tweeting about this earlier. Is it really that hard to believe that with how quickly these laws came around and these deals are brand new types of deals, you've got thousands of people, most of them likely unqualified on both sides of the table negotiating things. So maybe the numbers aren't that great. Maybe these people genuinely don't know how to negotiate, especially without having a salary cap. And there's just so many leverage wars going on. It's it blows my mind that uh, it shouldn't because I don't think the NCAA is capable of preparing themselves for things like this, but that there wasn't better structure in place because it's, it's not going to slow down anytime soon. I personally think they've got to just forfeit, say that pay-for-play is okay now, and establish strict salary caps because 
this is the way it's going. It's not going to get any better. You might as well try and get on top of it by accepting where it's going. Um, anyway, end of mini rant. As it pertains to this, I can't confirm any numbers with Rashada specifically. Obviously, you know, leading up, especially when he delayed his visit and right after this, my or his commitment and right after this Miami visit, of course there were NIL talks. I mean, that's. I think every insider understands that that's where we are at this point, especially with a quarterback coming from California, where it's legal for high school players to make NIL. So even if it's not directly money coming from a collective or a booster or the school, which is obviously illegal. There could be a Miami fan living in San Francisco right now that is, you know, loosely affiliated with Miami's collectives who is willing to put down X amount of dollars to get the NIL rights to Jaden Rashada for his senior year at Pittsburgh. All of these things are very possible. And with that, you know, it, it clearly is a bad look that this report came out for Florida, that they got into a bidding war and lost despite offering more money. If that's the case, again, this is alleged but this is according to the paperwork and the talks that on three had with this lawyer who represents Rashada. But it's not a good look, and ultimately, as everyone's seen, it's led to Florida Twitter just completely exploding and losing confidence in recruiting efforts at this point. certainly didn't help that an offensive lineman, Roderick Kearney, left his official visit at Florida two hours before Rashada announced his commitment and before he even got out of Gainesville committed to Florida State. It's just been... It's been it's been a yeah. lot, man. I understand where the frustration's coming from, no doubt. Well, and when you look at it, right, this has to be the things that are keeping coaches up at night now, right? Where when we start talking about this, it's very easy for it to sound like you said Florida lost a bidding war to Miami, and the coach has to come out with like two hands in the air, like no, 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 no. We had zero to do with this. They the two collectives were going back and forth with him, and there cannot be any language in there that says the money is tied to him committing to my school. Right. And I, I tend to believe that Florida is honest with that. Just from my you know, surroundings with the program and talking to people, I, I truly get the feeling that the coaching staff doesn't involve themselves in the dollars. Maybe someone at the top does. Maybe Napier. Who knows? He, he obviously wouldn't be, and I don't mean to accuse him of that, but he is the CEO of the program. Again, we know where NIL is these days and what it's doing to college football. Maybe he is at least in the loop on prospects getting, you know, talks of deals or dollar amounts for guys that transfer, yada, yada, yada. But I don't think Florida's assistant staff really keeps up with it. I, I will give them that much credit that they, I think they are trying to play by the rules and at least recruit prospects to the school based on what they can offer them on the field and within the program. I can't speak for other schools. But I at least get that feeling at this time. Zach, I like to ask uh, my college football guests before they leave, especially the writers, uh, I like to ask them the same question, which is what's the kind of thought that's percolating in your head right now? What's that next story going to be that you feel like uh, just is the thing that keeps spinning around in your mind that maybe not enough people are talking about or something that you want to get out? I mean, selfishly, I'm in the car right now heading to Tampa to uh, to go to the Elite 11 finals. So... I will be covering the guy that just chose Miami over Florida, in which case Florida fans will want to avoid my Twitter. But at the same time, it is a really, really good lineup of quarterbacks this year. Obviously, the Gators still need a quarterback of the future in this class. I don't know what that's going to look like. If it's a flip candidate, someone that rises at Elite 11 who isn't committed, maybe a transfer down the line. But regardless, this is 
the prime opportunity to get a good feel for the top 20 quarterbacks or so in the class of 2023. And if Florida's going to keep looking, I'll certainly have the content coming from this event to, uh, to get them informed. If you do want to follow along, you can uh, follow Zach on Twitter at Zach underscore Goodall or read all of his stuff on allgators.com. Zach, I appreciate it, man. Safe travels down to Florida. Have fun. Thank you so much. Again, Zach Goodall from allgators.com. Kind enough to take some time with us. we got to take a quick break. We'll be back more right here on ESPN Radio. Appreciate Zach Goodall from allgators.com hopping on with us here to talk some Florida football. And, man, Zach a little pessimistic about the, I guess, projections for Florida coming up in 2022. But I listen, I understand. If you've listened to this show, you know I believe football is built from the line of scrimmage out, right? Offensive lines and defensive lines win national championships. You saw those two teams that played in the national championship last year. That was a war in the trenches between Alabama and Georgia. And the reason Georgia won, I know Stetson Bennett played out of his mind, but the reason Georgia won is because what Nick Saban said to Kirby Smart after the game, y'all whipped our tails in the fourth quarter. If you go back to that game, Georgia's offensive line started eating up Alabama's defensive line, and that was the difference in the game. And so I understand line of scrimmage is huge. I understand Florida probably hurting a little bit right now on both sides of the ball in terms of bodies and in terms of talent. But I think a guy like Anthony Richardson, and I know he hasn't produced a ton in college yet, but if you have seen this guy, some of the runs that he has made and some of the throws that he can make, he was just down at the Manning Passing Academy uh, over the weekend. The dude's freaky. And he's got an absolute cannon for an arm, and he's got 4-3, speed at well over 220 pounds. So the guy is an animal, and I think he's going to fit really well in this Billy Napier offense. Does that mean Florida's going to win 10 games? Probably not. I don't know if they're going to start the season with a win, right? Utah, as we mentioned, coming into the swamp to take on the Florida Gators, but Florida is still a really talented team relative to the rest of college football, right? They might have a difficult schedule, and it might be a first-year coach, but I do believe they have upgraded at the head coaching position. I I, I believe in Billy Napier uh, down there with Florida. But with that quote-unquote lack of talent, it's relative, right? They're still better than 90% of teams in college football. So if Anthony Richardson can take that next step, I don't see a reason why Florida's not fighting for second place in the East. And then what I brought up to Zach is, if you're fighting for second place in the East and you can pull off an upset in Jacksonville, which go back and watch last year's game up until about three minutes to go in the first half, that was a tight ball game. Stetson Bennett was playing like crap. Florida was able to move a little bit. Uh, it, it was just crazy turnovers in those last three minutes, right? You had Trevon Walker dropping from the defensive line uh, into the middle of the field. Anthony Richardson, a quarterback with not a lot of experience under his belt, doesn't see Walker, who was the number one overall pick, fading back into the middle of the field. Dude tips the ball up, Nolan Smith with a diving interception, uh, and all of a sudden Stetson Bennett's throwing a bomb to Kyrus Jackson to break the game open a little bit. And I think it might have been the next damn drive where Anthony Richardson makes a mistake. He, he threw a curl route uh, out to the sideline that N'Kobe Dean just completely baited him into. N'Kobe Dean... Again, NFL linebacker now and maybe the best linebacker in college football last year. Amazingly fast. Breaks on that ball, picks it off, and takes it to the house for Georgia. And then all of a sudden, Florida's just not going to score that many points the rest of the game. Georgia can kind of just salt away the second half uh, and get out of there with the victory. 
Jacksonville is a weird place when it comes to that football game. We've seen all kinds of crazy things happen. If Florida can hold it to one loss in somewhere in the SEC to start the year and can somehow pull an upset off in Jacksonville, they're not that far away from going and playing in Mercedes-Benz. Am I saying that's going to happen? Absolutely not. Am I saying that Florida fans should be hopeful going into 22? Yeah, this is not one of those years where you just write it off like, man, we suck. We need we need a couple years of recruiting under our belt before we have any fun. No, I mean, this is a team that should be fighting, I think, for a New Year's Six Bowl uh, or a New Year's Day Bowl at the very least, whatever the hell they're calling the Outback Bowl now, right? You're, you're fighting for one of those games, and I don't see any reason uh, why Florida fans shouldn't feel that way. Georgia's still the favorite. I think if you look at Georgia's schedule, I think odds are they go 12-0, and right? No difficult opponents coming over from the West, and they are better by a long shot than everybody in the East. Like maybe they drop one out of three where it's Kentucky, Florida, or Tennessee, but those are your three toughest games on the schedule if you're Georgia. I, I, Oregon, I, I, not worried about Oregon. If Bo Nix is their guy, we've seen what Bo Nix has done against Georgia in the past, and they're not going to have the defensive line that Auburn typically has. So not worried about Oregon. I think if you're looking at three where Georgia's going to potentially drop one, it's Kentucky, Tennessee, or Florida. And if you're looking at the Florida Gators, I, I think Gator fans should be hopeful. Am I saying Florida's going to the college football playoff? No. Am I saying they should be fighting uh, for some – significant postseason stuff late into the season? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it should always be the expectation regardless of who is in Gainesville. We got to take a quick break. We'll come back with more. Get you ready for three and out next right here on ESPN Radio. There are very few things in sports that bring a smile to my face quite like a good old baseball brawl. And over the weekend in Los Anaheim, I should say, in Los Angeles, Anaheim, uh, where the Angels play. They're taking on the Mariners. And if you haven't been watching or following along closely with Major League Baseball, Jesse Winker of the Mariners has been on an absolute tear. And the dude is an awesome power lefty and just hits nukes consistently, right? Well, Jesse Winker steps up to bat, and the Angels decide they don't really want to pitch to him, so they just absolutely beam him in the hip with the baseball. The Atlanta Braves, in my opinion, have gotten a little soft in this regard. I understand you don't want Ronald Acuna Jr. Uh, getting into fights and getting more injured because the dude has a propensity for getting injured. I guess you missed it over the weekend. Took a foul ball off the foot and then missed yesterday's game. Uh, that being said, Ronald Acuna gets hit a lot, and I'm going to need to see a brawl at some point uh, in defense of him. But that being said, Jesse Winker got beamed in the hip, and did he decide to rush the mound? No. Jesse Winker decided he was going to fight the entire Angels dugout. And just the best the best brawl that I've seen in Major League Baseball. This thing lasted for like five minutes and like restarted three different times. The best brawl I have seen in Major League Baseball in a minute. There were there were some punches landed. There were some suplexes. There was a lot of like individual scuffles. It was a hell of a fight. And then Jesse Winker capped it off with the old double middle fingers to the Angels fans. Says, I'm going to get suspended. I might as well go out with some flair. I mean, we've seen the double middle fingers a lot in college football, right? I think back to the Tennessee player uh, who did it to the Alabama fans and one of the more iconic 
uh, bleep you pictures in the history of college football. We, we, we've seen a lot of double middle fingers in college football. Don't know that I have seen a ton of baseball players uh, hitting the rare double bird on the way out of the stadium, but Jesse Winker sure did. And, uh, you know, good on him. If he's available in free agency, wouldn't mind if the Braves took a run at him. We got to get out of here. Three and out coming up next. Kevin Thomas and Ben Troop. If you miss any portion of the show, check it out on ESPNCoastal.com.